Welcome to the APTO Show. I'm your host, Harris Aldemigal. Joining me today is Team Canada Women's Sitting Volleyball Team Captain and two-time Paralympian, Danielle Ellis. Danielle has not only been making waves as the Women's Sitting Volleyball Team Captain, but as an advocate for sitting volleyball, including campaigning for the inclusion of the Women's Sitting Volleyball matches televised in the recent Paralympic Games coverage. Welcome to the show, Danielle, and thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, before we get let's you know before we get started with a lot of things, um, let's maybe start a bit of background for our listeners to you know tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the sports and choosing sitting volleyball as your sport. Yeah, um, I mean, I was in sports ever since I was uh, quite a young kid. My parents put me in gymnastics when I was, you know, from like age three till nine kind of thing. And I started baseball when I was in elementary school, as well as soccer and volleyball. Um, And I was in small school, so I did track and everything, really. Um, And then I started playing volleyball more and started to love it. So soccer and volleyball kind of took over for me in high school. Um, And when I was 16, I was at a volleyball camp, just an able-bodied standing indoor volleyball camp. And uh, there was someone there from who knew about the U.S. women's sitting volleyball team. Um, So they kind of put me in contact with someone from the U.S. team um, who had found out that Canada was actually starting a team as well. Um, So that was back in 2007, um, just before the men's, uh, well, about the same time as the men's indoor standing was taken out of the Paralympics and women's uh, indoor sitting was put into the Paralympics. um, So we could have more female sports at the Paralympics, which was great for us. Um, So after that, um, I got in contact with, yeah, someone from Volleyball Canada. And there was someone who was doing some sitting volleyball trials um, here in Vancouver in BC at JF Strong. So me and my mom went out, um, just played some drop-in sitting volleyball on, I think it was Tuesday nights um, through like October, November, December. And I really liked it. I mean, it was really hard. (laughs) Um, It wasn't the easiest sport to get into for sure. Um, I've got to say it's a lot harder than standing indoor. I, it's, you know, just the butt scooting and all of it uh, adds a pretty difficult component to it, um, but loved it. And just the opportunity to try out for Team Canada was really neat, obviously. So I went to a training camp with Team Canada um, in the spring of 2008 um, and started, I met uh, Joe Lan, who I think you've interviewed, as well as there were just three other teammates, um, one of them, Amber, who's still on the team as well. And um yeah, so I started there and I loved it. I mean, it was a little a little different at the beginning, but absolutely loved it. Um, and yeah, here I am today, so many years later. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, did you say you started with, with standing uh, volleyball as well? Because yes, I believe I did. Jolyn did as well. And so then she transferred over to uh, sitting volleyball. Um, and what was your limb difference in comparison to Jolyn? Yeah, she's cancer. I'm cancer as well. Uh, so I had cancer when I was two weeks well they diagnosed me at two weeks old uh, with rhabdomyosarcoma um, and then just found a lump on my foot doctors biopsied it uh, cancerous so they amputated um, in January of 1992 which ages me I guess a little bit but I was two months old um, and then went through cancer uh, or chemotherapy and everything at um, BC Children's Hospital for about a year and a half Um, I was in and out of the hospital and then been in remission ever since so Oh, good. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. And then, of course, now you're you're playing in a, as an elite level athlete. Um, but let's start with the basics, I guess, of getting into uh, to volleyball. Um, maybe talk about the differences between a standing volleyball and a sitting volleyball, and some of the similar similarities and the difference between the two. Now, obviously, there's standing and sitting, and you talked about you know moving with your butt around and then scooting around with your butt. And so I know exactly what that is. But for some, some for some of the folks who, who may not be familiar with the sitting volleyball, let's let's give them sort of the lowdown of the difference difference between the two. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, the rules are pretty much the same. Um, So obviously you have up to three contacts to get the ball over the net, point of the game, get the ball on the ground on the other side. Um, You, uh, the court is a little bit smaller though. It's uh, five, each side is five meters long by six meters wide instead of nine by nine. Um, The height of the net is a meter, 1.05 meters for women and 1.15 meters for men. So obviously much shorter than uh, standing indoor, it would be pretty difficult to get that ball over the net on a standing head. Um, But other than that, most of the rules are the same. Um, You can block a serve, which is the biggest difference. 
Um, and then you have to have one part of your torso or buttocks on the ground when you contact the ball. There's only one exception and that's in the back row. If you're defending or serve receiving, you can uh, have a brief loss of contact uh, from the ground while you're contacting the ball, but the ball can't be over the height of the net. So it does happen a lot more. It, this is a fairly new rule. I think it came in 2016 or maybe it was just before 2016 that it came into effect um, and I, I do think it's great I mean it just allows athletes a broader sense to I mean obviously defend those balls that are coming pretty fast um, that is a big difference too with sitting and standing um, the play is so much quicker because obviously the ball isn't in the air for as long you're not passing it nine meters across the net to the setter you know you've only got two meters to pass the ball so you try to put the ball as high as you can but the ball probably doesn't ever reach even the top of the standing indoor net. So uh, everything is just a lot quicker, which makes movement a lot harder. Already movement is harder because obviously, as you said, you're on the ground, uh, your butt scooting. So um, in standing volleyball, your um, ready position is arms out, um, you know, bent knees, ready to move into any, any way. And while your legs are moving you, you're ready to play the ball with your hands. So for sitting volleyball, you have to move with your hands. So there's no ready position. Not only is the ball coming at you faster, um, but you have to move first and then be able to dig the ball. So it's pretty crazy. Um, and it's really hard the first few times you play it. Uh, I bring out friends and family all the time and a lot of people that have played indoor and beach. And it's definitely the biggest struggle is, is that being able to move and then not keeping your butt on the ground is obviously a really hard one. Everybody wants to block the ball from two meters up. So um, that's tricky, but really most of it's the same. Tactics are mostly the same. Uh, you know, you've got a setter on the court, you've got a libero on the court. You play with a middle, um, obviously left side is, you know, the way to be, that's me over there. Um, and yeah, three in the back, three in the front, you rotate, same as normal. Um, but yeah, that's the, I think those are the main differences. What's the biggest misconception about sitting volleyball? You know, you talked about, you know, you have to be, you know, in sitting volleyball, you are, you're always at the ready, right? You're, you're standing, your, your eyes are on the ball as it's coming down to you or as it's coming, coming towards you. But you're right, in sitting volleyball, you have to scoot first to get to the ball. So strength-wise, athleticism-wise, like what is the, one of the biggest misconceptions about sitting volleyball, you'd think? Um, misconceptions, I haven't ever really thought about that. That's an excellent question. Um, I've been playing for so long, I just, everything seems normal to me now. Um, but I think just, I mean, I really, everybody that I talk to about it, thinks it's hard because it looks fairly hard um and I I but it's true <laughs> um but I mean I think that I mean the ball's still coming at you real fast um they were clocking our serves um in uh Tokyo and I mean they were about 50 kilometers an hour and that's only coming six meters away so um it's pretty fast and pretty hard uh, I don't know that I think it looks slower when you're way far away um we watched the gold medal game up in the stands and I mean obviously that's the first time I've seen it and live in the last couple of years after with COVID um but it does look slower than that when you're watching it from way far away when you're on the court it's literally only six meters away from you and it's coming at you 50 there were a couple girls serving at like 55 kilometers an hour and you're like this is really fast. Um, so I definitely don't think that people can see that and understand uh, how really difficult it is to move with your hands first and then be able to play the ball. It's also really interesting in sitting volleyball, you play the ball a lot more with your hands um, than you do with your forearms, uh, which is really interesting. You know, a lot of the times you get first time coaches out and they're really talking about platform first because I mean, it is way easier to dig a hard driven ball with your platform. Uh, you know, you're not breaking fingers and uh, that sort of thing. But in sitting, you really just don't have that option. The uh, angles of the ball and your body are so much smaller with being on the ground. You know, I mean, my arms are way past the ground when I'm sitting there. So you don't really have the angles to be able to play with your platform. So that's a really interesting one. Um, just, you know, seeing new coaches and new players come out and, and really, I, I still want to play with my platform. I hate playing things with my hands. So it's still something I'm working on too. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I, I think, yeah. Um, again, same, same thing for me when I'm watching it, you know, or when people who are not familiar with the game watches, but they're like, but the ball always like just lands and they don't volley it back. But I'm like, but you know how hard it is to like be able to get to that ball at that speed to volley, to be able to volley it back. Like, it is really hard yeah. to get there trying to move with your hand 
to get there and then be able to 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 hit it back because I'm like, you, it may take you two scoots to get to where that ball is landing, right? And to your point, to that speed. And so they're like, but they just finished serving and now they're serving on the other side. Like, it's like, yeah. <laughs> I know, but it, but it is a lot faster on, you know, when you're down on the ground playing it. Totally. So I think, yeah. So that, so thank you for explaining that. Now going to Tokyo, I remember watching the posts on your qualification games just before being, you know, uh, before I think literally a week or two later, Tokyo was announced to be canceled or being postponed and we had no idea what that was what was going through your mind it was a huge roller coaster um I definitely I mean classifying at Halifax was probably I don't know I mean Tokyo was a huge amazing experience for me and I don't know those are probably my top two sport moments in my in my career um Halifax was just so amazing to be the last team to qualify. You have to work so hard for that. Um, you know, every other team that wants to qualify other than the seven teams that have already qualified in the entire world um, are there trying to, to get the last spot. And for us to have fought and went six and zero was amazing. Um, the feelings are just unreal. Every time I think about it, honestly, I get goosebumps. My heart's racing a little bit again. Um, it's just those feelings that you get in sport. Um, and so to come home and be so excited and be like, okay, we're six months out, like, let's make a plan. You know, I'm going to take like two days off and then we're like back in the gym because like we don't have time for anything. Like six months, like this is coming up fast. Um, and then, yeah, I think it was two weeks. Yeah, like, and um, they canceled or they, uh, yeah, they were, I mean, they were saying they were going to cancel the games uh, or Canada wasn't going to go um, first. And it was like really hard for me um it's like just such a struggle because I mean I work in um emergency medicine um so I work for the ambulance service so for me to be out there and like seeing what the pandemic is doing um and seeing our hospitals already starting to be overrun um seeing you know them setting up um pretty much triage hospitals and convention centers um it was huge you know and I knew that and I felt it and I saw it every day at work so for me part of me was like, this is the right thing to do. Um, we can't put the world through this. There are so many risks. Um, and for a sporting event to just go forward and, you know, risk lives, um, it just, it seemed like the right thing to do for me. But at the same time, it was like, this is what I've worked four years for. Like, this is what it, I miss birthdays, anniversaries, Christmases, uh, Easter's, um, this is why I woke up in, you know, between night shifts and worked out for two hours before I had to go to work from five to five. And, um, and so like, that was, it's just like a shot to the heart, you know, you're like, this is everything that I ever wanted in my life and it's being taken away from me. Um, so it was like a, it was a roller coaster, as you said, for sure. Um, I mean, I came to terms with it within, I, I definitely found out the news, my coach emailed us um she's like Canada's pulling out of the games I'm like okay I put my phone away for I think two days um because I just didn't want to see the media like you know people are posting about it and yeah news media and and everybody's like oh like should the games happen anyway should they not and um it's just like people talking about all these things and you're like as an athlete it's so different um it's so different so I just didn't want to see it so I ignored it for two days for sure and then I came back and um really thought about it and and wanted to come to terms with it so I did that and I understood and recognized and then when we found out that it was just a postponement and that they were going to do it the following year I was like yes like this is amazing news we have another year to prepare for the games like that's great for us I mean again coming in the last team that was qualified like you know we, we weren't slotted to do very well um, and now we have another year to train, like another year to compete and another year to practice and get better. And I'm like, this is amazing. Like, this is the best news that could come out of the pandemic for us, you know, of all the bad stuff that's happening right now. Um, so it was kind of interesting. You know, I really tried to put a positive spin on it as best as I could, because I mean, like, you know, most coaches and um, people say you can control the controllables and whether the Paralympics was happening or not was not within my control. So I'm going to do everything that I can to be the best athlete that I can when I get to go to the games. Um, so I think that we did that too, uh, which was kind of great. So it was a roller coaster for sure, like you said. <laughs> yeah. So for you, what, you know, when you heard that, 
you know, how did you then get the momentum back? And, and, and what are the, some of the things that, you know, kind of you do as an athlete and say, you know, I, I'm going back on my routine. And then the challenges, or, you know, the challenges of meeting with your teammates because of the lockdowns, like how did you put all of that together as a team captain for your team to make sure that they're also continuing to work out and continue to train individually yeah. for a team sport? Totally. It was definitely really difficult. I mean, for me, um, like in April, when we found out, I think we found out what at the end of March, beginning of April kind of thing that it was going to be postponed. Um, so for me, I was like, okay, well, all the gyms are closed. So I'm going to have to figure out how to get a gym in my garage. Um, and thankfully, um, I had moved two years ago. So I live in a townhouse and not a condo anymore, because my 700 square foot condo probably couldn't have fit as much gym equipment as I have in my garage right now. Um, so that was, I was extremely grateful for, still am extremely grateful for to this day. Um, and um, so I needed a gym. So that was all, you know, I asked my family, I'm like, can you, can you help me? Can you, um, you know, do what you can. So for birthdays and Christmas and, and everything over the last year and a half, to be honest, still building it. Um, that's all I asked for and all I wanted. And my family was really great and uh, gave me some money for some equipment. And so I've now got a squat rack down there and a treadmill and, um, you know, free weights and bands and all of that kind of stuff. So that was kind of my first step. I was like, I'm going to find a way to work out because this is what I love to do. And not only do I need to work out to like stay fit and stay engaged and get better for the next year, but like for my mental health, I was like, I need something in my life right now that, you know, is positive. And that's what it was for me. Um, I had worked with a lot of, you know, my mental performance coach in the year before, and that was something that we really put on. So I really pushed myself to get back into it. And it's definitely really hard when you're starting out um, with a garage gym and you don't really have very much stuff, you know, we bought some, um, not great Canadian tire kind of um, bars and stuff like that. You know what, but whatever works, works. I actually set up my gym for first in this little spare bedroom that I have that is, you know, about eight feet by eight feet. Um, it was tiny and I just put like little mats on the floor and towels and um, it was tiny, but you know, it's built and, and that's been great. So that was definitely my first step. Um, and then it was just like trying to find motivation. You know, you saw some of those like volleyball games going around. So me and Joanne, would like, you know, send each other volleyball vids and, you know, tag each other on Instagram and see what we could do. Um, the wall in here has lots of dents uh, from me setting against the wall as well. Cause right. This was the only space I had. So um, it was great. But um, so I definitely worked on my setting too. I've never been a setter. I'm not a setter. Like I said, I mean, I've been playing volleyball for a lot of years. Um, but setting has never been my strong suit. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to get my thumbs back, you know, um, going to get my hands under it, going to square up and get my forehead under the ball. And I'm going to learn all these things, you know, as an old, almost 30 year old. Um, why not start now? Right. So I did. And that was really great. That actually gave me a huge motivation. Um, just like trying to be better. You know, I set the ball 500 times a day, every day, and um, just to like try to get something. So um, that was really great too. And I think just trying to do that and, um, you know, posting videos about it and tagging friends and teammates just to give them a little bit of motivation. Cause it is, it was really hard, you know? Um, and then later on in the summer, um, I'm really lucky. I live on a big green space behind me. Um, so I set up some cardboard boxes and, um, some of the hockey tiles and I created kind of like a little court, put up a little badminton net, tied it to a couple of trees, um, to just work on my serving. Um, cause you know, what, <laughs> what else do you do? So that's where I spent most of last summer. <laughs> yeah, we do what we grass. do, right? Yeah, exactly. So it was definitely not easy. Um, but, you know, it's just, I mean, and like you said, um, I just wanted to like put myself out there and be the best I could um, and show my teammates that, you know, you can do what you can do. Um, and there are a lot of us did the same, you know, creating courts outside and garages, um, you know, using equipment they have on the farm to work out and that kind of thing. So um, it was great, you know, and I'm grateful to be on a team sport too, because you do have so many people to draw from, you know, um, if you're like losing energy and losing motivation and momentum, um, you know, you just have to reach out to one or two people and you've got a plethora of people to, to choose from. Um, and I find that's amazing. And, you know, I, I'm always trying to be one that 
people can draw from as well then too. So um, that's great. But getting back to training with the team was definitely a huge struggle um, and a huge struggle for me personally. Um, we didn't even think about coming back to training together until the fall. Um, so I think it was September that we were hosting our first camp in Edmonton. Um, and that was the same time that BC said no domestic travel. Um, so no interprovincial travel. And for me, it was really hard. Um, and I look back on this decision and I think about it and, you know, I'm always somebody that's like, I don't want to regret anything I do. You know, I've made decisions um, based on the time and place that I'm in and for what felt good and what I think is right. And, um, and this is definitely a decision that I find still uh, really difficult, but I chose not to go back to training um, in Edmonton. Um, like I said, I work for the ambulance service and I think seeing it every day seeing what um, the pandemic was doing to the hospitals, um, to the people, to the doctors, nurses, to myself, my friends, my coworkers. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to be someone who was causing that to be worse. So I couldn't put myself ahead of other people in the country. Um, and that was detrimental to myself and my team. And I made that decision and it was really hard. So the team did go back to training in the fall. I think we had tre- three training camps. Um, I zoomed in for everything that I could and uh, talk to my teammates and tried to practice in my garage whenever they were practicing. Um, But the travel was a big one for me. So I got back with the team in the spring. Um, In January, they shut down travel in Canada. So I couldn't, we were supposed to travel. And then things got really bad again after um, I'm sure Christmas and the holidays and that kind of thing. and then we got back, I think, end of February um, or beginning of March was the first time that I got back with the team. Um, and it just felt so good. Um, and it was so weird to travel again. Um, I was like saying to my coach, I'm like, maybe I should just drive from BC to Alberta. I mean, where I live, it's like a 12 hour drive through the Rockies in the winter. <laughs> it, what's safer, really? <laughs> um, so that was just a really tricky decision as well to make. So, um, me and my teammate from here, we flew, um, and that was our first time on a plane through the pandemic. So a year, um, a year later, and that, it was just really interesting. I mean, back then it was still, you know, nobody was flying and, um, everything was pretty quiet and the, the airports felt um, pretty safe. And now I've done it a few times in the last, uh, whatever, seven months, I guess. Um, but yeah, it was definitely really weird to get back to training and, um, to get back on court with everybody. Um, just thinking about it now, it's, uh, yeah, this seems so long ago at this point, but, um, yeah, it was, it was a hard thing to, to figure out, you know, going through, um, provincial guidelines, federal guidelines, volleyball, BC guidelines, sport Canada guidelines. Um, there's just all these people trying to tell you what you can and can't do. And, um, Thankfully, we have an entire coaching staff and high performance director and all of that to sift through everything and make sure that our training is safe. And um, I'm really grateful, you know, our team didn't have, hasn't or didn't have any positive COVID tests in the year and a half um, through the pandemic and all of our training. So obviously what we were doing um, was working and I'm super grateful that uh, they were able to keep us safe in training for sure. And then... Did you guys as a team have any um, any more training leading up to flying to Tokyo? We did. We trained um, through. So I think we had a training camp a month. It was probably March, April, May. Um, and then in June, actually, uh, we went down to the States to train with them. So that was a huge thing, too, on, you know, whether we should go, whether we shouldn't. Um, and it was interesting uh, back in June, this, uh, the U S was actually doing a lot better than we were with COVID numbers. Um, it was very weird to go down there. We were there for four days. We went straight from our Airbnb to the gym. That was it. No, nothing in between. Um, tried to stay as safe as we could. Um, and it was really weird just traveling and telling anybody that you're going to the States. Um, but I mean, that's what you have to do to, um, to go to the Paralympics without competing for a year and a half is, not um not okay (laughs) yeah um so every every team had competed um there was a super six that was in i think europe somewhere um just before or just after we went to the states um and you know most of the teams that were in the paralympics competed in that um so super grateful that we were able to go down there it was really weird and then we came back and had to quarantine as well um this was just before the um international travel um quarantine was up so we 
we got home on July 4th or July 5th, which was the same day um, that you didn't have to. Um, so we quarantined in Toronto together um, and got an exemption from the government to train on court, uh, which was great. So we had daily COVID tests and didn't leave. Like we were still stuck in our, our hotel um, and then walked just across the street to the gym. Um, and it was really weird. Um, again, I'm like, this just seems so, everything is so weird, you know, uh, what is normal anymore? What is normal ever, but like, what is normal in a pandemic? Um, so I'm glad that they were given, they gave that, um, the federal government gave that to, um, international or, uh, competing athletes. Um, cause it, it is just so hard. Like you, you really have to compete to be able to perform. Um, and so I think that gave us a huge leg up, uh, when we were in Tokyo to be able to have that. So, um, glad that we were able to train definitely and then that was pretty much the last time we trained and then um we met at Edmonton in the beginning of August and trained there for a few days and then flew out flew to uh to Tokyo so you did uh since coming back from the states quarantine in Tokyo or quarantine mm -hmm. in Toronto and then you all still separated uh, and went yeah. to your separate homes and or you know where you are and then got together again back to Ed in Edmonton before you all fly out to to Tokyo yeah, so we had about a month at home between uh, Toronto and uh, when we came back to Edmonton. And then uh, in Japan, I think we were, I think, I don't know exactly what the rules are. To be honest, I control my controllables and I do what my coach tells me a lot of the time. Because, you know, if you worry about all of the stuff, you just don't have enough brain power to do it. So I think we had to be in Japan for a couple of weeks before we entered the village. And then I think we were only able to enter the village five days before we were competing. Um, so what Japan did is they had host cities. Um, so we were in Shiwa, um, which was a beautiful little town, um, about eight and a half hours north of Tokyo. So got off the plane in Tokyo, bust up eight and a half hours to Shiwa. It was a long day, um, but they were just amazing people. So I think we were there for about eight days. Um, days kind of blurred together, but I think about eight days there. Um, and then we entered the village after that. Wow. Now there certainly were a lot of controversies surrounding Tokyo and how it happened even for the Olympics and then the Paralympics and then how, you know, from the cardboard beds to everything else, <laughs> which I'm sure you have your share of story with is it's not a cardboard bed or it is a cardboard bed, but it's, a, you know, it's good. Um, but one of the, the controversies uh, I'd like to talk to you about is the, um, how the games are, you know, there's inequities in how it's televised. And you're very vocal about the events, your your specific event not being um, going or was not going to be televised. Like, how did how did you guys find out? Or was it, you know, these are the shows, or these are the events that will be televised in the show, and these are not. And, you know, what was that spark that's that in you that said, um, wait a second, let's, let's rethink this through? Yeah. Um, I mean, right from when I found out, I was like, no. Um, we did found out the same way in Rio in 2016. Um, it was, I don't know, five to seven days before our first uh, um, game, our first match in Rio. Um, and they were like, well, this is the televised schedule. And we're like, well, sitting volleyball isn't on here until playoffs. So only our last match in Rio was televised, um, which sucks. Um, you know, like you work so hard. And I mean, the Paralympics, like, this is like the biggest event of your life as an athlete. And you're telling me that nobody from home can watch it. Nobody in the world can watch it. It just blows my mind. So anyways, Rio happened. I was a lot younger back then. And um, then Tokyo happened. So we're in Shiwa and our coach has a meeting and she's like, well, here it is. Uh, OBS is not going to um, stream your games. It's not gonna be anywhere um they hold the rights for it so nobody can you can't facebook live like you can't stream it anyway um because they hold the rights for the venue and we're like that's just wrong so you're telling me these athletes are at the paralympics and obviously we're not the only athletes too right there's lots of other um sports that weren't televised still um and you're telling me that none of these athletes can even like live stream the games like coaches can't live stream the games so that people at home can just watch like just our families can't watch like these families that have supported us come to early morning practices you know driven us miles and miles every day um and they can't even watch us at you know the the peak of our our athletic career like the best moment of our lives and, the, and they can't even see that it just blew my mind 
Um, so we talked about it and we discussed it and we're like, well, let's just send emails, you know, let's just send some emails to um, the broadcasting corporation um, and see what they say. So we sent emails, our family sent emails, our friends sent emails, we sent multiple emails, you know, um, and we're like, well, our coach had actually made those shirts. Um, I'm sure you saw them. It says mm. make the Paralympics a household name. So made those just before we went away, because I mean, at the bottom line, people still don't even know what the Paralympics are in Canada. You know, you talk to one out of 10 people and they're like, oh yeah, the Paralympics, like amazing, great job. And then the other nine are like, what are the Paralympics? Like, is that the Olympics? And you're like, nope, not that's a whole nother story, isn't it? Um, so anyway, so she had these shirts made, which are just great um, because it really should be a household name. We want people to know what the Paralympics are. It's different than the Olympics. I'm a Paralympian. I'm a two-time Paralympian and I'm proud of it. I'm not an Olympian. I'm not a two-time Olympian. Um, so we had these shirts made and we're like, well, this is perfect. This is going to be what we centered on. So um, I asked one of my teammates, who's a photographer, to just take a picture of us, me in the gym. Um, you know, and we were all wanting to make posts and just at least share what, what knowledge we had. It didn't really start as it was, it was supposed or anything. Um, we just wanted to ask the broadcasting corporation why it wasn't being streamed and what we could do to change that. Because all we wanted to do, we wanted one camera just to, just to see the games, you know, just so our families could watch. And, um, but I'm like, well, I'm going to post this and We'll just see and with all my just my thoughts and feelings you know I'm not a writer I'm not a blogger I'm not uh, much of an advocate I mean I'll talk about things but um, it's definitely doesn't take up a lot of my time in my life um, but I was like this needs to change and we need to change it so just made a post about it um, that's all it started and then it was shared and shared and shared and shared and um, posted everywhere and um that was pretty cool and we're like okay like we're getting some movement like we're seeing this on all of the volleyball networks across Canada um and then we're seeing it on other sports um as well and you know we're seeing other people repost we're seeing other teams repost um you know and we're like well this is going somewhere and obviously there are a lot of people that share how we feel um so you know we made more posts about it and shared more about it emailed more about it um you know, talk to whatever broadcasting companies we could um, to to figure it out and to say like, hey, like we we just want a camera. Like you had cameras there for the Olympics. Like well, you have yeah. all of the equipment that you could need. Um, so why are like, you're telling me, all you're telling me, we got emails back, sorry. And all they say is, well, there's more broadcasting for the Paralympics this year than there's been for any year. And to me, I'm like, well, that's not good enough. What you're telling me is not okay. Just because you have an extra, I don't know how long the extra is, but just because you have like an extra hour of broadcasting doesn't mean that that's better or that's nearly enough. These are prime athletes that are competing on the world stage at the biggest event. The Paralympics is the second biggest world event ever, like at all. FIFA is technically number two, but I guess they don't actually qualify because they don't allow every country. But um, but we're third behind FIFA and you're telling us that you're not going to broadcast us? I'm quite passionate about it, as you can tell. Um, so we just did what we want. Like, I mean, we just shared as much as we could and told people that it wasn't okay and it's not okay. And so eventually, um, you know, CBC um, was like, well, we're going to try to get these girls broadcasted because this means a lot. And um so it was great um I guess OBS allowed them to have a camera there during the preliminaries um so that was amazing so um our families I mean obviously no commentators or scores or anything like that but we don't even want that like I mean that's it's a start you know it's a start it's not the end and Paris is going to be better or I'm going to fight for it to be better and um yeah it was I mean it's amazing and there's so much more work to do um, like mm -hmm. I said, it's, it's not over and we're always going to be fighting and advocating for a parasport, um, female parasport, you know, we're the lowest of the low, they think. But I mean, if you watch our games and to be honest, I mean, I had a lot of interviews as the captain um, while we were at the games. And so a lot of the times I was just standing there with one of the uh, broadcasting people and waiting for my turn. And I'd always ask them, I was like, oh, you know, have you, have you seen sitting volleyball before? Oh no, this is my first time. And you're like, oh yeah. Like, how did you like it? And you're like, 
this is one of the best sports ever. Like, I, I can't believe I've never seen this before. And you're like, that's what it means. Like, that's what it is. It is one of the funnest sports to watch. It is so fast, so exciting. The plays are so quick. It's so exhilarating all the time. Why aren't more people watching? Why isn't there more opportunity for people to see this amazing sport? Um, yeah. No, I, um, I, I'm right with you on that. And I, th I do think it starts with that one voice, right? That one person to say, you know what, that's not right. You know, and again, uh, you know, and, and, and I'd like to talk to you more about the other stuff that you touched on about the Paralympics. But um, the one thing I guess, or the, one of the ones I wanted to, to learn more is when you started voicing that out, was it a, a Canada movement alone or did the other countries also started going, you know what, well, we want ours to be televised as well. Were you fighting just NBC or CBC at the time for the broadcast? We were personally um, just fighting. I mean, it wasn't even fighting against CBC. It was fighting with CBC uh, against. So it's the OBS is the Olympic Broadcasting Service, which um, took over Paralympic as well and back in 2018. Um, and so they have the sole rights. So nothing CBC or NBC or anybody can say can change that. But... I really don't know enough about it yet and I'm still learning and now that I'm back I have some time to to look through it but um, they hold the rights so they have to give the rights to another corporation and it's hard for a broadcasting service to just hand over rights and say oh yeah like you can stream this on your not so good camera and it'll be fine and because it all goes back to them right like looks bad on them if the camera angle is bad and that's what they were saying to us and I can understand that and I can respect that but it's still not good enough. Um, you need to come up with another way. You know, if there are people willing to watch, then, you know, you have to let them watch it, the right. Paralympic Games. Um, so later we had posted it. It was, we were probably already in the village um, by the time other teams kind of started saying something as well. Um, but we did see posts um, and shares from the other teams. Um, I know I saw a lot of other volleyball teams um, that were there, the sitting volleyball teams. I didn't see a ton of other stuff um, but again like I said by the time we were in the village it's really hard like you kind of stay off social media by that point um, and um, but yeah it was definitely a, a worldwide that people were starting to get frustrated and I think it just took one yeah like you said one person one team to say this isn't okay and for other teams to be like you're right this isn't okay because we're told it's okay that's what we're told all the time is it's mm -hmm. better than it was last time so that's okay Right. Everyone was running on that this year. It's going, but the Paralympics are getting more tele like, televised this year. It's like, okay, so you added 100 hours more of it, but it's yeah. also playing at 4.30 in the morning when no one else in Canada is awake at the time. And you have to give yeah. it to the athletes too. Like none of their, you know, support team is at the stands right now. And this is the only way that to your point, they can view the hard work that they also put in to get the athlete up on this, on the main stage. And so you know, to your point, it is sort of like an acknowledgement of this is, you know, your hard work is paying off. I'm playing the, in the big games, you know, I'm here, I've made it here. And so I think I get it that because of COVID, there aren't that many shows. And that's why they gave the Paralympics a little bit more airtime this year. But I think setting this precedence now, I think should be next for the future games, you know, like to your point, Paris is just three years away. Can't believe it, that it's actually shortened now for everybody else competing in Paris, right? I guess picking up on the inequalities with this starting, you know, um, sh showing more, you know, let's, let's show more on TV. Another thing that started a discussion on is a wage equity gap, right? Between women's sports and men's sports. And the U S team has really spoken about that. And even the Paralympic team were very vocal about the U S Paralympic team was very vocal about how little they get paid in comparison to the, to the Olympian counterpart. Do we have in Canada the same experience or the same inequalities that happens in both sports? We have the same inequalities, yes. Um, so the U.S., um, super proud of them, um, really grateful for their um, Paralympic organization for coming up with a way to pay their athletes for medals. The Canadian Paralympic Committee does not have that. Um, the, I, from what I've heard and listened and learned from is uh, the Canadian Olympic Committee actually has a um, I believe it's a, a donation um, that, you know, they get money for, and that's what uh, goes to pay athletes for medals in the Olympics. And we don't have that for the Paralympic Committee. 
So um, yeah, maybe something that should be started and something that, you know, we can grow from because I think it's unreal that, I mean, Paralympic athletes, you know, it's harder to do anything. Um, you know, I am a two-time Paralympian and I work full-time um, and more because, <laughs> you know, I have to make up my hours for when I'm gone in the summer. Um, so, you know, I work time and a half most of the year. Um, just to be able to make it to the Paralympics to pay my mortgage and pay for my gym. And um, I think that um, we're doing a lot better with services. Um, you know, Petro Canada helps and, you know, Sobeys gave us a, a pretty great tag and they skip card when we just before we left. And um, I think they're starting to do things, um, you know, and I think the Paralympics is included a lot more with the Olympics, you know, when you, you see commercials and that thing, you, you see the agitos, um, not just the Olympic rings. Um, and so it is starting, but yes, funding and um, monetary uh, benefits are still not there. Um, and I really don't even think our Olympic athletes get enough money for, for what they do and, and how far they go. And I can understand that. I mean, you go to other events and, and maybe that's where you can find some funding for your sport, but, you know, being an athlete in a lot of sports, you know, unless you're NHL and they'll be like, you're not, you're not playing sports to make money. Like I am, you're never going to be a rich person by competing in most sports in Canada. Um, so that's definitely, it's just, it's not even ever something that's on my mind, um, but definitely seeing the US and, you know, we follow a couple of their athletes. Um, I think that's so amazing to see. Um, and I really hope that, you know, you come as far as you do. And I mean, that's, a, that would be a great benefit to, you know, and maybe help athletes to push further, push harder, because, you know, I mean, really the, the medal is all you want at the end of the day, but I mean, right. that's definitely helpful when you go back home and you're like, okay, well now I have to train for another three years and I have to get funding for that. And so. right. well, I think I, I equate it to a catch 22 situation um, in Canada anyway, as an athlete or as a pair athlete is you, you know, I think there's more cost to a pair athlete. For example, if you're a wheelchair racer, you're, you're, you're racing wheelchairs like eight, $10,000. I'm not saying that, you know, a runner in an able-bodied Olympian is just going to need a pair of shoes from Nike, you know, no, but that yeah. there's, there's, you know, so there's that inequality of the cost right away to do, the, you know, a pair of sport. And then you have your cost of training, which both people go to the gym, both people have coaches, both people have the exact same travel. And so, but there's the added cost of adapting that sport to fit that person who's a Paralympian or a para-athlete. And so the cost is like way skewed on the other side. And, and then in order to train well to medal, to get paid, you need the funding to actually train. So it's a catch 22. It's like, but how do I medal if I'm not training? Cause I can't afford training, but in order to get funding, I had to medal. So it's a bit of a catch 22. And I think sometimes people forget that about, you know, athletes and, and para athletes. It's like, yeah, I can train and train and train in my backyard, but I'm never going to be the same elite athletes like the Americans yeah. who get funded all throughout their athletic career until they medal because the Americans want those medals, right? Yeah. America as a country, they, they need the medals. And so they spend money on their athletes to make sure they bring home the medals. What are your thoughts on, on that, get, just getting the athletes prepared for a medal? Yeah, I mean, I think that's huge. And I think that um, it's starting, but yeah, like you said, I mean, able-bodied parents are like oh no like hockey like what's that going to be an equipment like five or six hundred dollars like that's like a smidgen of what it's going to cost any para-athlete to compete in anything and um thank goodness there are like you know some um companies that will help um young athletes and children but um not a lot for adults that are going through I mean a couple of my teammates were athlete were adults when they uh, became amputees and just the cost of um, of anything is it's just astronomical you know um, a couple of them are above me amputees so their legs cost 50 grand fifty thousand dollars for a leg and it's like well there's my life savings and then some like um, and that's just for regular you know so on top of that you're I mean thankfully my sport doesn't have a lot of equipment and I'm really grateful for that as well um, I just have a little leg and that's just great um, but it just costs so much. Um, so how, yeah, it, it, it is the catch 22. Like you have to be good to get funding 
to get better, but like, how do you get good in the first place if you don't have any funding to get good in the first place? Um, and that's such a struggle. And um, especially, yeah, I am grateful that at least in Canada, like our, our children are taken care of a little bit better by those companies. Um, but yeah, if you're an adult and you, um, you know, you're in a bus accident, you know, you're in a skiing accident and um, you lose mobility and then how, how do you get back into sports? And that's so huge and so beneficial for not only, you know, going to the Paralympics and getting a medal and, and doing that, but like just for like mental and physical health and wellness and um, living better. There's just not a lot out there for amputees. And um, that's an, another thing that I think that like make the Paralympics a household name. We need to make para a household name. Like, and that that's different, but you know, we, we need to make living with a disability, a, a, a normal, like people need to know more about it. People need to, it needs to be more normalized so that hopefully we can get more funding for these athletes because they deserve that funding as much, if not more than, um, the Olympic athletes that are, you know, doing what they can do and have been doing it their whole lives. Like, this is something that's changed this person's life and now they have to start again um, and they need uh, help and we don't mm -hmm. have that in Canada. Yeah, I know. I always equate it to like, you know, a, a, any physical activity that you do after like an amputation or an accident or just becoming a person with a disability, that, that community that it creates for you to participate in any kind of sports or activity, that engagement changes you physically and mentally. And so, you know, giving this this sort of platform for more accessibility to things, I think is very important. Let's go back to sitting volleyball. How does one get started in a sport? One of the things I wanted to ask you earlier was, are there categories, like, again, I'm bringing my athletics background, um, categories in order for you to play a specific position in sitting volleyball or does your disability, like how does that kind of all work out in what position you play and or the level even that you play in in, in the sport? Um, I don't think so. Um, we have, so we only have two classifications in sitting level. I know, um, athletics has a lot. Um, so you have athletes from all different ranges. So we are, I think it's mostly limb deficiency, um, or mobility deficiency. So we're amputees, um, which is the easiest classification. And then there's people with limb difference, um, people with um, mobility issues. So, you know, there's a couple of volleyball players um, that like can't move their elbow above their head kind of thing. Um, and then a couple of people with like hip um, mobility. So you can't really move. Um, Cause you do see in the Paralympics, a lot of four limbed athletes, which we don't personally, we have one four limbed athlete, but um, there's, we don't have a lot, but um, there are different classifications. Um, and it is yeah, mostly deficiency, um, for mobility um but for us on the court um you can play any position um myself i'm a below knee app um and we've got several of those um i play on the left side there's a couple of play in the middle our setters a below knee app um we've got a couple of above knee apps one's a libero one's a front row player um joe's uh Jolan's a rotation plasty she's a libero um our, our minimal which is our, our four-limbed athlete is a setter as well so really I, I mean you can have um and sorry Annie is um we've got one hand uh amp and um she plays in the front row so um the libero for Italy which I think she well she I think she might have got second best libero in the tournament um is at an arm amp which I think is just amazing being able to play with your platform that well um but as all of us amputees know I mean what is normal um, and like you can do whatever you set your mind to and like um, your disability is just a hill to climb over like you can do anything um, you know I grew up with that mentality and I played standing I played soccer those are not right. uh, sports that uh, most amputees would be like oh yeah let's let's put her in that she's only got one foot let's let's get her to play soccer but there I was. Um, so as we all know, like you can really do anything. Um, and just the way you move on the court, it's mostly with your arms, um, but then your legs are really beneficial. So um, our maps like definitely can move across the court a lot faster than, than those of us just, just one leg. So mm -hmm. anything, you can do anything. 
I mean, one of our uh, our above me amps that plays in the front row approaches almost backwards, like goofy footed, um, because that's where her leg is. So for her to be able to push forward um, with any momentum, she has to use her left, whereas usually you'd use your right when you're right-handed. Um, so it's just learning and adapting. And I think as MPGs, we're yeah, no, I think that that's really the key, I think, is just we adapt to anything that we're, you know, it's not like, oh, I can't do that to your point earlier about playing soccer. Oh, let's put her in that because she's got one like, but it's not really that anymore. It's like, how do I adapt that sport so I can play it? Right. And then yes. you, we, we move on from there. Right. So like I've I'm a multi-sport totally. player. So I was just like, OK, let me try that then. Like, And this is how I would play that now with with my uh with my amputation. So um, where do you see yourself and the game going next? And how would you like uh, to Paris. see the sport grow? <laughs> I see myself in Paris in three years. Um, no, but like aside from that, um, I think the sport is growing and I think that that's great. Um, you know, I was just watching just before we uh, sat down here. Um, Europe has, I think, Europe sitting volleyball has three or four competitions every year. They have got their their bronze, their silver, and their gold championships. And they've got so many teams um, to be able to do that every year. And I just think that's so amazing. And so I think that that in itself is growing the sport. Um, and I'm hoping that what I would love is to see more of, of our zone here. We have, I mean, it's the Pan-American zone is so weird, you know, being in North America and only having us in the US. Um, and then down in the States is really just Brazil, but, you know, we've seen Peru play, we've seen Colombia. Um, so like seeing more teams um, play would be great. Um, I would love to have more competition in our zone, um, you know, and I think it's, it's hard for them to get started, um, like financially and just support um, from, you know, their government and their sport organizations. Um, but then on top of that, now they have three of the top four teams in the world to, to compete with. So um, it's a little bit intimidating, I think, sometimes, which is okay. And uh, we've been there, but um, I would love to see that more as well. And I'd love to see some more leagues across Canada because we are such a huge country. We can't just travel like Europe does and yeah I'm just going to France for the weekend to play some volleyball <laughs> um so I'd love to see some more um you know sit downs and um what that was something that I actually had a goal for for this year is to to see if I can start some rec um here in BC in the lower mainland um you know one night a week or every other week just for people to come out and try it and um see how to play um, because I think that's where it's got to start, you know, um, people don't know about it still. And I think that there's a lot more talked about. And I think with the advocacy that we did in Tokyo, there are more people talking about us. Um, but like I keep saying, it's just not enough yet. So I'm ready to keep pushing forward. And I want more people to be able to play both able-bodied and adaptive, you know, um, you want the sport to be able to be out there for everyone. And I think that that's really important for, for young students and young athletes to see too, is they can play sports that are, you can be, can play sitting volleyball and you can play standing volleyball neither is better they're both equal they're just different sports same as beach and indoor right um and i think that that will create a safer space for disabled young athletes to be able to play sport um i had, i didn't even know about adaptive sports until i was 16 um which is just crazy to me blows my mind still to this day so that's the start anyways and then uh yeah we'll go from there i think Awesome. Now that's great. And what, where could people find you? Yeah. I mean, catch me on Instagram because I'm there way too often. Um, and if people want to know anything more about volleyball, sitting volleyball in Canada, I would say head to the Volleyball Canada website, which is just volleyball.ca, easy peasy, um, and reach out to, there's a couple of contacts on there and they'll put us, put you in touch with us. And um, we're here to grow the sport, build the sport. So if you want to come out and play, I'm down for it. I'm going to be at Harry Jerome all fall. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you so much for spending your time with me today. I want to thank Danielle Ellis for joining me today. I'll share the link on my website at www.aerosolidivino.com. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any comments, questions, or show ideas, please connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at The FDO Show. Until next time, I'm your host, Aerosol Domingo, and this has been The FDO Show Podcast.